This morning, uh, we're continuing the series that we've been in called Between the Directories. And if you have not been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, let me catch you up to speed real quick. Or if you've forgotten, then this will be a refresher for you. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at what happens between the church directories. And I have my hands on a directory from 1973. It's interesting. And then from 1977, 78, I've got one from 86, 94, 97, 2001, and 2008. And it is amazing to look and see what has happened between all of those directories. Now, I have not been here, obviously, uh, that entire time, and so... Many of you have, as I can tell by the pictures, and some of you have changed just a little bit since that time. Hair has changed, glasses have changed, family structure has changed, and so what we're looking at is all of the things that happen between that and what we can do about it, how we should deal with that. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that one thing that happens between those directories is marriage. And some of you in these pictures were uh, children in one, and a couple directories later, were then married with someone else. And you see the progression, and, and many of you can look through these and say, you know, I remember that picture. That was the last picture that I had made with me and maybe my brothers and sisters and my, my parents. That was it, and then I got married, and then there I am in the next one with my spouse. And, and, and we looked at what God has to say about marriage. And then two weeks ago, we explored the very difficult topic of divorce and how many families here have been touched by that, either directly or indirectly through your extended family. Uh, but in one directory, maybe you were with the family that you once knew, and then the next one you are with someone else or by yourself because it's been torn apart by divorce. And then last week we looked at the reality of children and that they do indeed happen between the directories, and we need to know what God has to say about how we should raise children. And so I'm sure that since we've covered all of that, that everything now in your marriage and in your family and with your children and grandchildren is absolutely perfect. I, I'm, I'm confident of that. I, you know, I realize that once you hear something the first time, that you just put it into practice and everything is perfect from that point on. Is that right? And please don't, don't make me think that that's not true because I have, I have these lofty thoughts of you all that, the life is just perfect. The truth is, it doesn't, it doesn't always happen that way. Just because you hear a message, a sermon, or what God has to say on a particular topic doesn't mean that immediately uh, things are going to be perfect. In fact, it rarely happens that way. Is that not the truth? It rarely happens that you hear something, a message preached, or you read something from the Bible, or you, you hear something that gives you some solid advice, and it rarely happens that immediately changes are made and set in forever. Most of us would say, you know, I heard a message two or three weeks ago on marriage, and let me tell you, you know, that afternoon, everything was great, because we were both still thinking about what the pastor had just said on marriage, and, you know, and well, my husband, he was just taking care of me more, my wife, she was just as sweet as she could be, and then Monday happened. And Monday always comes after Sunday, doesn't it, man, you know, and, and for, for those of you that don't like Monday, it's going to happen again tomorrow, you know, and or maybe you, you heard the... the message on divorce and you just thought, you know, that that's not going to be us, or I'm going to begin to heal from this divorce that I went through. And, and then it's been two weeks and things happen. Or last week when we talked about children, you think, all right, I got it. I, this is this is it. I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my kids what's up. And they're going to listen. And as in Proverbs 31, it says they're going to rise up and call me blessed, you know, and, and, and they will honor me and listen, everything they have to say about me is going to be incredible. And then you went to lunch and, you know, it didn't even take until Monday. You went to lunch, you got in a car and started to drive home or right? just, and, and so let me, let me, let me give you this. If you're thinking, okay, you know, this stuff is great. Hey, you know, thanks a lot for talking about this stuff, but you know, reality hits and. But let me give you this. Let me give you both a challenge and an encouragement this morning. The challenge is this. We cannot sit and listen to what God has to say and let it go in one ear and out the other. Can't do that. Uh, you know that as well as I do. If we are to see God work in our lives, then what, what he says to us uh, from his word, we have to take to heart and put into practice. And that is the challenge. So I would challenge you, if you have not seen any distinct change whatsoever, continue to put into practice what God has said. 
It won't happen overnight, but you will begin to see how God will work through your obedience and through what you're doing. So that's the challenge. What you've, what you've learned, what you've heard from the Scripture, what you've taken notes on, continue to put that into practice. The encouragement is this. Even if you do put it into practice, you're probably not going to see changes just like that. Not going to happen overnight. So keep going. The Bible is true. It does, in fact, because it's true, work in your life. It will play out to provide for you the best life that God has designed. But it's not an overnight process. So the encouragement is to continue. Continue working on your marriage, applying the principles you learned from the Scripture. Continue to raise your children, as we looked last week, to have a biblical worldview. Keep doing those things. That's the challenge. That's the encouragement. And so most changes you know are not going to happen. The ones you desire, the, one God, the ones God desires, are not going to happen overnight. But keep going. Keep living in obedience to the Bible. And so be, be patient with the stuff in between the directories. Be patient with those things. Keep going. Endure. And, and when you fail, understand this. When you fail to, to do marriage God's way, when you have a bad day, when, when things happen, when you blow it with your kids, when you feel like the pattern is just not good, understand this, that God has not forgotten you. God still loves you, and he will pick you back up and set you back on your feet. It is equally true that we must respond in obedience as it is that God still loves us even when we fail. And so maybe you've failed over the last couple of weeks, and you just think, well, you know, I heard that message and I blew it. But, you know, I've read something from the Scripture. Keep going. God still loves you. He still wants the best for you. And so we'll continue the series this morning dealing with another difficult and unfortunate subject. Uh, And looking over these directories, and and the reason I brought from all the way back in 1973 to the most recent, I believe in 2007 or 8, is the fact that as I flip through these, there are folks that are in one and not in the next. There are folks who are in one from 1973, and then by the time you get to 1978, they're nowhere to be found. There are some that are in there from 2001, and then by 2004, they're gone. There are folks whose pictures show up in one and then are not in another, and the unfortunate truth is that some of those folks are no longer at Elm Grove because of a conflict, because of a disagreement. Now, I just say that, and many of you that have been here for years, those, those people come to mind. You've got them in your mind right now. You can see their faces. In fact, you remember the night they left. You remember the conflict. I've heard some stories. You told me. This church is perfect, though. I'm telling you what. You know, let me tell you, we talked not long ago about what a biblical church is and does, that it's full of imperfect people. And let me tell you, I can attest to the fact that even though this is a great church, it's imperfect. And I've told you before, if you're a perfect person, you walk in and that, please leave. Because you're going to mess everybody else up. Because we, we are imperfect. You're going to rock our world. And the truth is, this church is imperfect. We're full of humans, and therefore we are imperfect. And this church is imperfect. And we can see that. We can see in those faces you have in your mind, those conflicts that, that led a person or a family or a group of people to leave. And maybe they've gone somewhere else. Maybe they're not in church anymore or whatever. But, but those things are still fresh in your mind. And, Maybe some of those folks were leaders here in the church. Maybe they were faithful attenders. And you you come each Sunday and you remember where they sat. And there's something about you that just bothers me. That that person, that family, that group is not here anymore. And, and conflict is certainly something that churches deal with. I mean, church conflict is a major issue. I have an, an entire book that's dedicated to the subject. The title is, is Resolving Church Conflict. It's a whole book. It's like 300 pages. There's, a, there's enough Church conflict to fill up one book plus a whole lot. There's an entire website. It's called resolvingchurchconflict.com. Amazing. That entire books and websites have been devoted to church conflict. Uh, It's a shame, and I'll say this just as a whole, not just with here at Elm Grove, but you can agree with this, I'm sure. It's a shame that the body of Christ, which is supposed to be united around the one cause of reaching lost people no matter what, can easily be divided over issues that probably should not divide us. Some issues are worth fighting over, there's no question. But some issues, certainly, uh, we look at and we say, golly, did that really blow up to be as big as it was? But today I'm not going to talk to you about church conflict. I'm not going to talk to you about the issues that our church faces and those sorts of things, because I believe that it goes deeper than that. I believe, obviously, that the issues that churches deal with stem from the conflicts between individuals. And so we've got to look at how is it that we as individuals 
can look at and deal with and handle conflict, then I believe we'll be able to effectively handle conflict in our church, in our families, uh, between friends, and our, our businesses, our schools, the teams, and so on. And so with all that said, I want you to know that I don't come from, from the perspective today that, that all conflict is bad or wrong. Uh, certainly you can see benefits in, in some conflicts. You've been through things and you think, well, you know, that was a little bit tough when I was dealing with it, but I, I really believe that everybody involved came out better because we dealt with those issues between us. You probably could identify some of those things. And so not all conflict is bad. Not all conflict is wrong. A lot of times we grow because of conflict. We are strengthened. We are shaped. And so the goal today is not to show you how to avoid all conflict. Now, some of you would say, golly, I was hoping I'd show up today. And you just tell me, look, the best way to deal with all conflict is just avoid it. And, and, and the overwhelming, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. The overwhelming majority of the people here are probably conflict avoiders. You would not admit it. You know, no, I can deal with that. And yet you're just scared to death. Scared to death of any conflict, you're just kind of smiling because, you know, I'm the same way. I like conflict. I'm not sure that anybody who's sane really enjoys conflict. We've got those crazy people out there just like to stir things up all the time. And, you know, they just seem to, seem to thrive on conflict. You know, don't help anybody. But, you know, we, those are folks that, that we, you know, we think, we, oh, what's going on with them? But, but at the same time, uh, we realize that today is not meant to help us avoid conflict, but to look really at the Bible and to say, how can we deal with it? How can we handle it in a productive way? Because I believe this is true, that conflict can either destroy or enhance your life. Conflict can either destroy or enhance your life, and the choice is yours. How you approach it, how you view it, how you respond to it, determines whether conflict will destroy you or enhance your life. And we all have a certain way that we look at conflict and deal with it, and I came across something that I thought was interesting, and maybe you can relate to one of these particular profiles. Some of you, when it relates to conflict, you are a shark. That is, you are competing. A shark is assertive and uncooperative. Certainly nobody here like that. An individual pursues his or her own uh, concerns at the other person's expense. This is a power-oriented mode in which one uses whatever power seems appropriate to win one's own position. A few sharks probably in the room. Others, though, are teddy bears. You're accommodating, unassertive, and uncooperative. This is the opposite of competing. When accommodating, an individual neglects his or her own concerns to satisfy the concerns of the other person. There's an element of self-sacrifice in this mode. The truth is, no, probably nothing gets resolved. You just say, well, whatever, just go ahead and do what you're going to do. Maybe, see, maybe you're a teddy bear. I'd say a lot of us in here can relate to being a turtle. You are avoiding unassertive and cooperative. When a person does not pursue his or her own concerns or those of the other person, uh, he or she does not address the conflict, but rather sidesteps, postpones, or simply withdraws. I've uh, got a few turtles in the room. Others, as this study shows, may be an owl, that you're a collaborating person. The opposite of avoiding collaboration involves an attempt to work with the other person to find some solution which satisfies the concerns of both persons. It includes identifying the underlying concerns and the two individuals, and finding an alternative which meets both sets of concerns. Or then, finally, this study produced this one. You are the fox. You are compromising. The objective of compromise is to find some expedient, mutually accessible, acceptable rather solution which partially satisfies both parties. Everybody has a way they go about conflict. You could probably think in your own family, well, you know, that person's the teddy bear. They just don't, you know, they, they just give in all the time. And they, 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 everybody sort of likes them, but they know they can easily be run over. Or, you know, that person's the turtle. Anytime conflict comes, they just go into their shell. They just avoid it. They just pretend like it doesn't happen and sing happy songs. I don't know what they do, but they just avoid conflict. Or maybe you say, you know, that person, you know, they're, they're the, the shark, and they just go after everybody. And so you can see that there are many ways to deal with conflict. But what I want to look at this morning is not though it may be helpful, not psychology. I want to look at what the Scripture has to say, because I believe we need answers from someone who is outside our conflicts, the one who created us and who can provide the answers that we need. Because in truth, psychology can provide some help in times of conflict, but we really need to hear from God. We need His wisdom, we need His solutions. And so I want to look at this morning the story of an Old Testament family that dealt with an ongoing family feud 
that lasted from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis chapter 50. And in fact, we can see even today remnants of that family feud. And so if you've got your Bible open, I just want you to get to Genesis. And here's what we're going to do. Get to Genesis, begin in chapter 12, and just hold your place there. All right? Fight the urge to start reading and try to guess where I'm going next and all of that. And at the same time, I'd like for you, if you've got your bulletin handy, to follow along on the back, because here's what I want to do. I want to identify where you may be in the journey of conflict. As you'll see on the back of your bulletin, there are several different headings. We'll first talk about the nature of conflict, uh, then the common causes of conflict, then ways to prevent unnecessary conflict, and then how do you resolve conflict if, in fact, you may be in one today? And so this message will hit different folks different ways. You may be simply needing to identify what's going on. Why are we in such conflict? And you may be able today to look at the common causes of conflict and say, well, okay, well, that's it. That's where I need to to improve. That's the area that God needs to work on. Or we can maybe work on this. Or or maybe you look and say, well, look, I'm not really in a conflict right now, but, but I see all these unnecessary conflicts. How can I prevent some of those. And you may begin to work on that. Or you may say, well, you know, I'm right in the middle of one today. And, and it involves maybe somebody close to me or something like that. And so maybe you would look at the principles that we'll get to on resolving conflict and, and apply those. And so I want you to, to work through this with us this morning. And let's first look at uh, the nature of conflict. There are some, some truths about conflict. These are not going to be anything earth-shattering to you. The first of which is that it is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable. And you know that. Because on the way to church this morning, you had one. Some of you. Or maybe you're going to have one on the ride home. It's just par for the course. You just do that every Sunday, whether you need it or not. Why not? Let's just have a conflict on the way to church. The kids were late getting ready, or they were driving you crazy, or somebody was sort of piddling along, or something happened, and you just, you know, you, you had a conflict. And maybe your drive isn't even that far. You know, you just may live a half a mile from the church, and it's amazing what can happen at half miles, is not God, everybody's yelling and screaming, and of course, what you do, you, as soon as the door shuts, it just turns the channel, and everybody puts on their happy face, and they walk into church and act like nothing's going on, you know. But, you know, some of you realize very easily that conflict is inevitable. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. Uh, in fact, some of you say, well, you know, we'd have a conflict on the way to church, and I seem to be getting along with everybody here this morning, but I know what I'm going to tomorrow. You know, with work, I just know there are built-in conflicts. There are people that just don't like me. There are people that I don't like. Uh, there are just some things underlying, and, and you know, and, and we're going to deal with that. Or at school, for those of you that are, that are going to school tomorrow. Uh, you know those people that you're going to be in contact with as you sit in class, whether that teacher, that coach, or whomever, and you just say, well, you know, maybe right now I'm not, but I'm, I'm going to be in a conflict tomorrow. And then uh, the great thing is this week we've got Thanksgiving. And isn't it fun to go and deal with all the family conflicts that just get buried at Thanksgiving under the turkey and dressing and all of that stuff? And, you, you know, you smile and you just think, yeah, you know, we'll get there and we'll, we'll talk with each other and completely pretend like there's nothing going on, that the last 10 years have just been great. And we'll pretend all of that because we're supposed to get together for Thanksgiving. I don't really want to go, but I have to because Grandma's going to get mad if I don't show up. You know how that kind of stuff goes? And, and then we just get there and we eat and we kind of smile and we talk about kids and the weather and that kind of stuff. We go home and go, oh, good grief, we made it. We didn't have to deal with all that junk. And, and conflict is inevitable. You're going to experience it maybe today or tomorrow or Thursday over a big meal, but it is inevitable. It's everywhere, and it's even among people that should get along. It's in families. Folks who should get along should like each other if you're in a family. Doesn't always happen, does it? Should like each other if we go to church together. If we're all Christians, we should like one another. But let me show you something. Uh, one passage, I told you to turn to Genesis, so anywhere else I go, I'll get there for you. One passage of Scripture that I find kind of interesting, Exodus chapter 3. You'll see most of the passages on the screen behind me. Uh, this is where Moses is at the burning bush, and he's encountering God, and he, and he says, what am I supposed to say to the Israelites? Why would they believe me? And then in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 3, God says this, God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and mark these names, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Now, understand that when he identified, the Lord does this, identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Jacob, uh, excuse me, Isaac and Jacob, about 10 or 11 times in the scripture. You would think that if this is the way God chooses to introduce himself, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that those guys would be perfect. I mean, that they, they would be in his name for some reason, that, that he would identify with them, and they would be just absolutely glowing renditions of who God is. And yet, from Genesis chapter 12, when we pick up the story of Abraham, all the way through Genesis chapter 50, what you see is not perfection, but constant conflict in the families of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Conflict is inevitable, even among God's people. Even among people that God identifies himself with, says, these are my people, these are my folks right here. Lots and lots and lots of conflict. And so they experience this in their families and in their relationship. In fact, a theme in Genesis, I encourage you to go back and, and read it with this perspective. A theme in Genesis is the conflict between family members, Cain and Abel. You look at Abraham and, and Lot. You, you look then at Isaac and Ishmael, brothers. Jacob and Esau, brothers. Joseph and his brothers. All the way through this book in Genesis, we look and we see these guys that we hear Bible stories about, and we sometimes overlook the fact that their families were messed up. Talk about dysfunctional families. You think you've got one. Read Genesis. They didn't like each other at all. They killed one another. They went around each other's backs all the time. They talked about each other and then pretended like everything was okay when they had to. Certainly nothing like any of our families today. A conflict is inevitable. And just because you follow God doesn't mean that conflict will go away. In fact, it may increase the conflict that you face in life because not everybody then will get you. They won't understand you. So the nature of conflict is inevitable. Second is this. God always uses it. God always uses conflict. Genesis ends with the truth that, that sort of highlights this fact that God was at work in spite of all the conflict uh, that these families faced. This family feud could not keep God from using conflict. He used, it, he used it to teach them, to shape them, to mold them, and ultimately to accomplish his purposes for his glory. And you may be in a conflict or a difficult situation right now. I, you may leave with nothing else but this simple truth, that God always uses it. That God always is in control. And you need to remember, I need to remember that in times of conflict, in times of trouble, that God is still at work. He is still in control. Even when it may seem like relationships are splintered and broken, and you think, why on earth did this happen? What is this for? God is always at work. Because it's easy to lose hope when you see it some other way, but when you see the fact that God is at work and you see it through this story, it gives you perspective. It gives you some hope. And so no matter what you're going through right now, be a very difficult relationship or someone you thought that you were close with and now things aren't, understand that God is still in control and using those things. Joseph, at the end of his life in Genesis chapter 50, told his brothers, he said, you know, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. God had a purpose. He was behind the whole thing. And so Genesis closes with that truth that God always uses it. third thing about the nature of conflict is this. It can easily snowball. It can easily snowball. Now, there are two scenarios in Genesis that illustrate this. I want you to write down this reference. We're not going to read all of, this, all of the scriptures. I want you to write down this reference. Genesis chapter 27. Just write it down next to the party. It, it can easily snowball. Genesis 27. The first 15 verses of Genesis 27 highlight an interaction and that would lead to ultimately a major dispute between family members, and it involves uh, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca. Now, Rebecca loved Jacob more than she loved her, her, her other son, Esau. And so they were playing favorites back and forth, and Isaac, their father, loved Esau more. And what you see in this particular passage of Scripture is a way that Rebecca and Jacob were going to scheme against Isaac and Esau, the, the father and the other son. 
And what you have here is this, this competition, this snowballing effect, because at the end of all of this, the consequences of the deceit that was done to Esau and to Isaac over a birthright, which was a huge, uh, important part of Old Testament life, and the blessing of the Father. To understand, we're not going to get into all the details about this, but this was a major, major deal that the firstborn son was supposed to receive. Jacob was the secondborn son, and he steals all this stuff from his older brother. And his mother's in on it. Isn't it interesting how the web gets a little bit tangled? Rebecca forces, in a sense, Jacob to do these things, and he goes along with it. And then you have the consequences play out over the next few chapters. Consequences of this conflict were the fact that after this time, in Genesis 27, Jacob never saw his mother again. This was it. This was their last interaction, a a, a, I guess a conspiracy, so to speak, to steal the blessing from his father. Esau then, his brother, wanted him dead. Talk about a snowballing effect. What Jacob thought, well, okay, mom, I'll go along with that. His brother wants him dead. He was later, the tables were turned, and Jacob was later deceived by his uncle. The rest of his family, uh, his, his life with his family is full of conflict, and he was also then exiled for many years from his family. Conflict has a way of snowballing and sort of getting out of control. When you think that, well, something's not a big deal. The way I treat this person, what I do in this situation, really not a big deal. And all of a sudden, it blows up. And all of a sudden, you think, well, how did that happen? The story of Joseph highlights another fact. Look with me in Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4 say this. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. Do you remember that story? When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Now, the rest of the story in Joseph's life snowballs. Not only did his brothers hate him and couldn't speak with him without saying something negative, you know anybody like that? They could, they could not stand him. Later on, they, did, they, they fake his death so they could sell him into slavery. He is later thrown in prison after he's accused of rape. Then he is forgotten in prison. And finally, he faces his brothers down the road after years and years of this unresolved conflict. What they thought was sort of a simple family deal. I don't really like my brother because my dad seems to favor him. Snowball. So I don't have to tell you that in your life, that's probably true as well. That you've got something that you don't even know why you're arguing anymore. You got anybody like that? You got anybody that you just argue with, you just don't like, and you can't remember why? You just think, I really don't like that person. Well, why not? Well, I just don't. You ever responded that way? No, listen, I've got people like this. Let's be honest for a second. You know, I just think, why do I like that person? I just don't. I just don't like them. Well, what happened? I, I don't know. You remember. You've got people in your family. You've got friends or ex-friends, and you just say, well, I'm not sure. Or, or now the, the goal is not, well, uh, to, to win based upon something that was actually an issue, but now it's just a winning argument, period. doesn't matter. You ever have that with your spouse? You ever have a, a, an issue and you just keep arguing and, and the issue is really small, and now all you're concerned about is just winning? You know how it can snowball? You with me on that kind of stuff? You can see the nature of conflict. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. God always uses it, though, but it can easily snowball. And so it's important as a result of that to identify some root causes of conflict. And let's go through these. Here are some very root and common causes of conflict. The first is fear. The first is fear. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to roll through each one of these, and we're going to highlight a story or a person in this particular passage, Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. And so each time, maybe you want to write down the person's name. Go back and study that later on. This will be very general today. Meant to pique your interest and get you maybe to study a little bit more. Genesis 12, you got your place marked there. Let's start there. Look at what God says to Abram, who later be called Abraham. Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. Here's his promise. That's what God's going to do. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse 4. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Now understand, Abram at this point had no children. His wife had, had not 
produced any offspring whatsoever. And he's 75 years old. You think, well, that's Bible times. He was just a kid. Understand that by this time, 75 was still past childbearing age. It was past all of that. Methuselah is no longer around at 960-something years old. Abram was an older man. And at 75 years old, God told him, not only are you going to go and be blessed, but I'm going to produce a nation out of you. That means he's going to have to have kids. And then much of the next few chapters gives evidence that Abraham really didn't think that God's way was going to be the best. He feared that maybe what God had said wouldn't come true, that maybe God really hadn't set it up to be what God said it was going to be. And so Abram takes matters into his own hands. And he lies twice about his wife Sarah actually being his wife to avoid the consequences of him being killed for his wife. And then later on, in their disbelief of what God said, in their fear that God's way was not going to be the best, Sarah gives Hagar, her slave, to Abraham, and they have a child named Ishmael. And because they feared that God's way was not going to work out, we have now lasting conflict as a result of their fear. Do you realize, many of you do, that the descendants of Abraham's son Isaac are the Jews. The descendants of Abraham's son Ishmael are the Arabs. Do you understand who's been fighting since they were both born and who are still fighting today in the Middle East over issues they probably don't yet realize but started in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram said, I'm not sure I I believe that God's way is the best. You talk about a snowballing effect that we still see the effects of today. Fear that God's way was not the best led to some major conflict and major disagreement. So I ask you, where in your life do you fear that what God says you ought to do isn't exactly right? Is it in your job? Do you work yourself to death because you're afraid that God will not provide the way that he has promised? Is it in your family? Do you do things differently because you think, well, I need to take matters into my own hand? How is it that you fear that God's way is not going to be the best? I can guarantee you this. Based upon the scripture and personal experience, that if you do not trust what God has to say, then conflict is sure to come. It's going to happen. And we see that even today. So that's one root cause. Another is pride. Another common cause of conflict is pride. Mark this reference down Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11. It's in this passage of Scripture that Joseph tells his dreams that he had to his brothers. Well, you think, okay, great, he had a dream. But in his dream, two of them, as a matter of fact, all of his brothers are represented, and they are all bowing down to him. They're all older than him, but they're bowing down to him, which flew in the face of everything that Old Testament society was about. The older never served the younger in the Old Testament. It was always the younger serving the older. And so when he tells them, let me tell you this dream. Let me tell you these two dreams I had. It's amazing what God's going to do in my life. Guess what? All you guys one day, you may be older than me, but you're going to be bowing down to me. Not only that, but you and mom and dad too. They're all going to bow down to me. At the end of this particular passage of Scripture, it says they hated him all the more. Can you imagine why? Now, I'm not saying that Joseph was necessarily thinking, well, let me, let me go take this out of my brothers a little bit. They don't like me. Let me tell them what's going to happen. But there is, there's a hint of pride. And Joseph really didn't consider how this would land with his brothers. Didn't consider how it would affect them if he told them, look, here's what's going to happen. And and so the conflict snowballs as a result of this pride. So maybe in your life and in mine, we need to consider that. Pride is not admitting when you're wrong. Nobody here is like that. Somebody else. Pride is refusing to say you're sorry. Pride is always having to have the last word. Everybody argue like that. Well, those arguments go on forever, don't they? Especially between two people that have to have the last word. That's awful. Always having to have the last word. Pride is thinking you're the only one who really knows how to do it. Pride is not giving credit where credit is due. Pride is getting angry when you're not recognized for something. And certainly you can see that all of that is sure to create some major conflict. Pride is a common cause of it. Another common cause is favoritism. And we see from Genesis that this is true. <laughs> because in Genesis chapter 25, verses 27, 
in 28, it says this, when the boys, talking about Jacob and Esau, grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, they played favorites big time. Later on, as we read earlier in Genesis 37, it says that, I, that Jacob, Joseph's father, loved him more than all of his other brothers. And it is easy to see how this favoritism, this unequal love between people led to some major conflict. I believe Genesis highlights that as one of the common causes of conflict. So you've got fear, pride, favoritism, and then finally jealousy. Jealousy. Again, in the story of Joseph, chapter 37, verse 5, it says this, Then Joseph had a dream, as I mentioned earlier. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. They were jealous. They didn't like him because his father preferred him. They didn't like him because he told them what was going to happen. They were jealous. Think about how many times that simple jealousy produces major, major conflict. And one person gets something another thinks they should have, be it at school or at work or in your family. I mean, think about those things. Trace it back. Think about some of the conflicts. And it probably could easily have started with just some simple jealousy. I think I deserved that. That's what I was to get. Jealousy actually is not between you and someone else, though. Understand this. Jealousy is actually believing and thinking that God owes you something. Because God could have done for you what he did for that person. God could have blessed you with that kind of money. God could have blessed you with that kind of family or that kind of job. It's God who you're upset with, and I get jealous because God didn't give to me what he gave to someone else. And as a result, I don't like that person, and then we have a conflict. Jealousy is a root and common cause of conflict. So there you have some of those causes. But what do you do when you're not in a conflict right now, and you just say, well, i just like to prevent some of those from happening. You'll see on your bulletin that there are two boxes. The one you just filled out, there's one directly across from it. Each line, you can draw a line across, because each one of those reflects one that we just looked at. So when we look at the fact that fear is a common cause of conflict, draw a line straight across, and how to prevent unnecessary conflict is to trust God. To avoid fear, to conquer fear, trust God that what God says is true, is true. What God says, how, how, how God says we are to live, is exactly what we should do. How do you avoid unnecessary conflict or prevent it? Trust God. Instead of fearing that God's way is not best, trust God in every aspect of your life, with your family, with your money, with your job, with your time. Trust God that his principles will ultimately provide for you the life that you are looking for. The one that says pride, draw a line across, and, it, and the remedy for this is to think of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's been said that humility is just thinking of yourself less. In James chapter 4, you may want to write down the reference. James says, let me tell you, you want to know the source of your arguments, the source of your disagreements? It's because you want something, you can't get it. You're thinking of yourself only. And he goes on to say that, you, you want things, but you ask with the wrong motives so that you can be selfish with what you get. Isn't it true that if we will think of ourselves less, that our conflicts tend to go down because we're not fighting for what we think we deserve or what we think we ought to get? The remedy for favoritism is to love equally. To love equally. A couple of powerful verses in Romans chapter 12. Verses 9 and 10 say this, Romans 12, Love must be without, without hypocrisy. That means there's nothing in it for me. Detest evil, cling to what is good, show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. There's no preference whatsoever in that. And then verse 16, be in agreement with one another. It doesn't, doesn't say who, just one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Those you may overlook at first. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Try to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. In verse 18, if possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. To love equally. And then finally, the remedy for jealousy is to celebrate with others. 
celebrate with others. You find yourself jealous of a person, write them a note, tell them how excited you are for what's going on in their life. You may not mean it, but if you wait until you mean it, you'll never do it. Let's be honest. To break the cycle of jealousy, thinking God owes you something, and I don't like that person because of what God has given them. You have to begin to celebrate with them, to be an encouragement to them. Somebody gets a new car and they drive it over to your house and say, hey, look at my new car. Your first thought may be, God, I get a new car every two years. It drives me crazy. Look what I'm driving. You know what I mean? Come on. You know what I mean? And instead, maybe you break the cycle and just say, man, that's incredible. Hey, you mind if I drive it for a second? I don't know what you do. I mean, then just take off with it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Did I just say that out loud? <laughs> Probably not the best thing to do. But begin to break the cycle of jealousy by by celebrating with other people. I'm telling you what, there is freedom found in that. It's hard. Boy, it's hard to do that, but there is freedom found in that. Because then you'll learn to be content with what you have. You, you'll be a person that other, folks, that other folks like to be around, and, and you'll be on ground with God. But you're not looking constantly for what you feel like he owes you. Celebrate with others. And I realize today that some are in a conflict right now, and you're saying, okay, let's get to the end. We're talking about resolving conflict. What do I do? Give me the nuts and bolts of this. So let's get there. If you're in a conflict, if you've got something going on, you know you're going to deal with today, tomorrow, Thursday of Thanksgiving, how do you begin to resolve some of those issues? The first is this. Deal with it quickly. Deal with it quickly. The reason being is that it can snowball. This stuff is not rocket science. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, and extremely practical. Deal with it quickly. Jacob and Esau let their feud go on for two decades. Two decades. Got somebody like that? You haven't talked to in 20 years? You just start small? Then it started something, you know, if I could have dealt with it back then, we probably could have avoided all this stuff. Joseph and his brothers didn't resolve things until their father, Jacob, was dead. Well, what a, what a celebration it would have been to have all the family together and all these issues resolved. And, and for one last time before their father died to say, Dad, things are all right. But how many of us have had those unresolved conflicts and that person passed away and things were not made right and you carry that with you? Deal with it quickly. Jesus himself spoke of the importance of resolving conflict quickly. Matthew chapter 5, right down the reference, verses 21 to 26. He says this, if you're on your way to church and you're going there to worship, or a sacrifice he was talking about in the New Testament times. And you remember that somebody has something against you. Not that you're mad against them, but they're mad at you. He says, stop what you're doing. The importance is not go to worship, but to go make things right. He says, do it quickly. Make things right as quickly as you can. Go to them. Apologize to them. Do everything you can to be made right with them. So deal with it quickly because it can easily snowball and affect everything in your life. Second is this, swallow your pride. Swallow your pride. We've been looking at the story primarily of Jacob and Esau and then Joseph and his, and his brothers. And Jacob had to finally come to the point where he had to swallow his pride with his brother Esau, knowing he had wronged him. And in Genesis chapter 20, chapter 33, rather, verses 1 to 3, it says this, Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. Now that's not enough to humble you a little bit, nothing is. So he divided the children among Leah, realized they haven't talked in 20 years, and the last thing he knew is Esau wanted to kill him. He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two female slaves. He put the female slaves first, Leah and her sons next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. He swallowed his pride. And in his bowing, recognized Esau, look, the last 20 years, they're my fault. I'm sorry. I'm bowing before you in a position of respect, in a position of humility, saying I was wrong. Later, Jacob's, excuse me, Joseph's brothers in chapter 50 come to him after years and years, after having sold him into slavery, telling their father that he was dead. Verse 15 of chapter 50, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is still holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the wrong we caused him. No joke. So when they sent this message to Joseph, so they sent this message to Joseph, before he died, your father gave a command, say this to Joseph, please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the wrong they caused you. 
Therefore, they, they say this, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. They humbled themselves. They realized and recognized and verbally admitted, Joseph, we were wrong. They swallowed their pride. There's something about humility and asking for forgiveness that heals conflicts and disagreements. Third thing is this, choose to forgive. Choose to forgive. Jacob had humbled himself before his brother Esau. And then we see Esau's response, chapter 33, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. He chose to forgive. Twenty years they hadn't spoken. You don't see this account of them dealing with all the details. They said, you know what? Maybe we'll talk about that stuff later on, but let me tell you, I forgive you. Esau ran. He had 400 guys with him, thinking, Jacob thinking he's going to get attacked. Esau ran to him and said, you're forgiven. And then Joseph, after his brothers come to him, bow down to him, we are your slaves, they say, verse 19 of chapter 50, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God had planned it for good to bring about the present result, the saving of the survival, rather, of many people. Joseph said, you're forgiven. All those years of junk, I canceled that debt. You know what forgiveness is? And I think why we struggle with forgiveness. Forgiveness is not saying what a person did is okay. What do we say if somebody comes up and says, oh, I'm sorry, that's okay. That's not. It's not okay what they did. Forgiveness is canceling the debt. That person does not owe me anymore. I am not in the place of God. They don't owe me anymore. That's what forgiveness is. And so for some of us today, we need to forgive. You say, well, you don't know what happened. No, I don't. My question to you is this. How long are you going to carry it around? How long? Get out your calendar, put it on the the calendar. At this point in time, I will forgive. I mean, is there going to be a time? Seriously, I'm not not just trying to be facetious. Is there going to be a time we say, well, look, okay, another two and a half years, and I think that'll be enough. I will have paid them back with my lack of talking to them or with my carry around this grudge. I will have finally paid them back for what they did to me. You may say, well, you know, that's kind of smart, Ellie. You don't really know what happened to me. I, I really don't. But I know this, that the longer you choose to carry that around, the more it's going to affect you and probably not that other person. Am I right? And so choosing to forgive doesn't mean that you say what they did was okay. But choosing to forgive, say, you know what, today I cancel that debt. That person no longer owes me anymore. And then finally, leave revenge up to God. Leave revenge up to God. Joseph, at the end of chapter 50 here in verse 21, he says to his brothers, Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He was in a position as the second in command in all of Egypt to easily have each one of them executed just at his word. And he chose to leave revenge, the consequences, up to God. I referenced earlier Romans chapter 12. And in verse 19, it says this, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. Talking about God. For it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Leave revenge up to God. Conflict can either destroy or enhance your life. And the choice is yours. How you will handle it, which principles you will operate by, yours or God's. The world's or God's. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. God is always at work. He's always using your circumstances to make you the person he wants you to be, to accomplish his purpose in your life. So trust him. See it from his perspective. And if you do, then conflict will enhance your life. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. But if you see it from God's perspective and operate according to his principles, then it can enhance your life. And as we close this morning, I want to say this to you. That some of us here today need to resolve a greater conflict than just between a person you may be sitting close to 
or a person you'll run into this week. Because the Bible says there is a great conflict between each one of us because of our sin and God. The Bible says that apart from Jesus Christ, we are enemies with God. We're not just sort of distant from God. We are on the other side. We are enemies of God. You're either on his side or you're not. And so maybe today the conflict that you need to resolve is the one that's been caused by your sin. The Bible says we've all sinned, Romans chapter 3, because of that we're all enemies of God. But it says there in Romans chapter 5, two chapters later, that Jesus came to make peace between us and God. And you can try all you want to do lots of good things, and you can come to church each and every week, but that will not make peace with God. The Bible says the only way to have peace with God, to be on His side, is to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To ask him to come and be in charge of your life and to clean you up from all the junk that's in there and to say, that old life is gone. I'm turning to Jesus. He's in charge. He's my Savior. And so that conflict is the first that needs to be resolved. And now you say, well, how do you do that? It's as simple as just asking the Lord for forgiveness because you admit, you know what, I'm I'm a sinner. I've messed up. There's no question about that. And you believe in Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation. And you commit your life to him and say, I want you to be in charge. Others today, you may have already made that decision. You say, you know, I've I've resolved that conflict between me and God. I did that a few years ago, or that's been taken care of. And I, I, I believe without a doubt that I'm a Christian, and I have Jesus living and controlling my life. And yet, maybe you're a person who today, before you leave, needs to resolve a conflict with somebody here. They say, well, that's going to take some time. We'll leave the lights on. No problem. We won't shut you out. Or maybe you need to choose to forgive. Or maybe it's just, you know what, God, I I need to wrestle with you as Jacob did in his story over so many issues, so many conflicts in my life. God, I need to talk with you. So what is it that you need to respond to? Conflict can either enhance or destroy your life. And I pray today that you make the decision to see it from God's perspective. Let's pray. First of all, I'm I'm thankful that you have resolved the conflict between you and us by sending Jesus. Lord, that you chose to cancel our debt of sin. And so, Lord, for those who may be here who need to resolve that conflict, and I pray that you would impress it upon them, that they would not be able to get away from their spirit this morning, pressing it on their mind and their heart to give their lives to you. Lord, for others who may need to resolve a conflict, to swallow our pride, to choose to forgive, to leave revenge up to you. But I pray that today would be one of freedom, that we walk away different. So, Lord, if we need to pray, we need to spend time wrestling with you over these issues. Lord, help us to do it today. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for his sacrifice to make peace with you. We love you. We praise you. In his name, amen.